All right. Well, hey, thanks for being with us here tonight as we are uh, continuing, actually, in the fourth week of this series that we've been journeying through together in uh, just this incredible Old Testament book, the book of Amos. And so if you are uh, just a guest with us here tonight or if this is your first time out to Grace Church, uh, let me just extend kind of a very special welcome to you, kind of like Clark just said a moment ago. We count it an absolute privilege that you would carve out some time to be with us here on uh, at the, the 7 o'clock service on Saturday night. So thanks for being here. And uh, just to catch you up to speed, if you did miss the past few weeks or if you are a guest with us here tonight. What we've been doing is we've been journeying through, um, like I said, this, this Old Testament book, uh, the book of Amos. And what we've been saying is that this book is a little bit of uh, kind of an obscure book of the, of the Bible. It is a, a book that is often overlooked. Uh, it's only nine chapters. It's sort of tucked away in the Old Testament. And quite honestly, many of us maybe have never read the book of Amos or maybe have never seriously read the book of Amos. Um, most people haven't. And, uh, and yet, what we've been saying in this series is we've been saying that this book, the book of Amos, is strikingly relevant to us today. We said the cultural moment that we find ourselves in, uh, the book of Amos speaks really directly uh, to the situation that we find ourselves in today. And so uh, for that reason, we've been taking these, these several weeks really just to kind of go through the book of Amos to sort of understand what the heart of that message is and then to sort of talk about how does that impact us today and, and how is that relevant to us. So that's what we've been doing as we've been going through the book of Amos. And like I said, this is the fourth week in this series. And so as we continue in this, I want to invite you to go ahead and grab your Bibles. And as we continue going through the book of Amos, we're actually going to look together today at Amos chapter 5. And so go ahead and get your Bible and uh, take that out. Let's get to Amos 5 together. Uh, you want to put that there in front of you, so Amos 5. If you did not bring a Bible with you here tonight, that's, uh, that's no problem at all. There should be some Bibles in the chairs there in front of you. And you can grab that and turn to page 640 in those black Bibles that we have provided for you. And, uh, and also, let me just mention, too, that if you don't own a physical copy of the Bible, we actually really want you to have one. And so you can just take a copy of our Bible, make that a gift from us to you. Um, so Amos chapter 5, however you want to get there. Once you got it open, just go ahead and hold it on your lap. And, uh, and let me start by just telling, telling us kind of a quick story to sort of get us all on the same page as we look at the topic that Amos is going to introduce us to tonight. So um, three words, three words for you, all right? Compassion, um, compassion, number one, justice, number two, and generosity. Okay, so compassion, Justice and generosity, three words. So there was this, this, this tribe that lived on a river for generations and generations and generations. They lived on this, this river bank, and there was a river that, it was part of the river that bent, and so they were kind of right on the bend there. And like I said, they had been there for generations and generations, and so one day they were going about their business as usual uh, when they were alarmed to see that there were a couple of people who were injured that were floating down the river. And so this, this tribe of people decided to act with compassion. So they showed compassion. They went out to these bodies, they, to these people. They pulled them out of the river. They, they nursed them back to health. They treated their wounds, and they acted compassionately. Well, a couple of weeks kind of went by, and after a couple of weeks had, had went by, they were alarmed again to see that this time there was two people that were injured that were floating down this river again. Uh, one of them was a child. And so again, these people acted compassionately and they went into the river and they pulled these people out. They helped nurse them back to help. But not only did they show compassion, they also showed generosity because one of the people in the community decided to adopt this child and to adopt them into their family and help provide some of their basic needs for them. So they showed not just compassion, but also generosity. And this continued to happen 
over the course of several weeks, they would, they would see intermittently that someone that was injured would float down the river and they would show compassion and they'd show generosity and they would help the, these people out. And after several weeks of this finally happening, the community got fed up and they said, that's it, we're gonna, we're gonna figure this out. And so they decided that they were gonna send a group of their own people and they were gonna pack their bags and they were gonna take a journey to try to go upstream to figure out what the source of the problem was, to deal with the problem at its source. This mission that they were on was not a mission primarily of compassion or generosity. This was a mission of justice, to go upstream and to deal with something at the root and to restore things back to the way that they ought to be. And now, why do I tell you that? Well, that's, a, that's actually kind of a modern-day parable. But the reason I tell you that story is because it introduces us to the topic that we're going to look at tonight. And tonight, we're going to talk about God's heart for justice, justice. That's what we're going to talk about. And we're going to talk about God's desire for his people to be people who pursue justice. That's what we're going to kind of look at as we have a chance to talk about this tonight. Because here's the thing. If you've been with us over the course of the past few weeks, you might remember what we said. As we said, the book of Amos actually reveals to us something that we call the seven undercurrents of spiritual drift. And so what we've been saying in this series is we said that the book of Amos uh, was actually written to a group of people, to God's people, the Israelites, in the 8th century B.C., and we said that the, the Israelites, they were, they were called God's people. They were God's chosen people. Uh, we said that they were called by God's name. They were in something called a covenant relationship with God, which basically meant that they were to be the people that were associated with God and that they were to represent the heart of God to their community and to their world. And yet what we find in the book of Amos, the Bible says that these people who were called by God's name had drifted dangerously far from God's heart and they were totally unaware And so the reason God sends Amos is really to kind of issue a wake-up call to God's people and to redirect them back into his heart. And here's what we said in this series. We said that this this book, the book of Amos, is not just some antiquated book that was written for some people back then, for God's people back then. We said that the book of Amos is actually something that is extremely relevant to God's people today. That if you are a follower of Jesus in this room, that Amos speaks directly to us because we, those of us who follow Christ, we are equally as susceptible into drifting in the same ways that God's people did back then. And so because of that, we've been looking at this. We've been talking about these seven undercurrents of spiritual drift. And here's what we found so far. A couple weeks ago, we looked at drift number one. We said the first type of drift that we can drift into, a dangerous spiritual drift from the heart of God, is something we call domesticating God. So we spent a whole week kind of unpacking what does that mean? How did this happen in the book of Amos? How does this happen in our life? And so we had a chance to kind of talk about that. Last week, if you were here, we talked about number two, that this, this second uh, undercurrent of spiritual drift. And we called that blessing blockage. And so we had a conversation kind of talking about what does it mean to drift into this? And so we unpacked that a little bit. By the way, if you miss these conversations and you want to catch up on those, you can grab those on our website. Uh, you, can subs- you can download our app, subscribe to our podcast, a lot of different ways to do that. But today, like I said, we're going to be looking at the third type of drift, and this is something that we're calling corrupting justice. Corrupting justice. We're going to talk about justice and how sometimes we can inadvertently drift into corrupting justice. So what do I mean by that? Well, this is where Amos 5 comes in. So we're going to look at Amos chapter 5. We're actually going to start in verse 21. So we're going to read this together. And let me just refresh you if you've been with us. What we said is happening in the book of Amos is that God is giving a series of indictments towards his people. He's giving some charges against his people. He's saying, here's the problem I have with you. 
And one of those indictments we're going to see right here in chapter 5. So let's take a look. Starting off in verse 21, here's what God says. God says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. All right, now, now let me just pause here for a minute. I think at first glance when we look, when we look at these verses, they're kind of uncomfortable verses. The book of Amos is kind of an uncomfortable book. And, and right here, I mean, there's some strong language that you see in here. Right? God says, I hate, he says, I despise your religious festivals. He talks about how he won't accept these things, how it's a stench to him. I mean, this is pretty strong language, a little bit of an uncomfortable passage. But I think this passage right here is so crucial. And the reason is because in this, we have exposure to God's heart. And I think that this exposes us to one of the dangerous ways that we can drift from the heart of God. Here's what you notice real quick. Notice in this passage that the group of people that God is speaking to were deeply religious people. You notice this? Notice how, how many times it speaks to their religious devotion. Check it out. The Bible says these were people who would observe religious festivals. These were people who would have assemblies. They would go to church. Like we're going to, you know, they have regular spiritual gatherings. Um, they, would, they would bring burnt offerings and grain offerings to God. Choice fellowship offerings. They would sing songs. They would have worship songs, music with their harps. And what is all that referring to? Well, some of you know, what that's referring to is the ways in which people would worship God. Uh, in fact, all of these things that are mentioned here were actually prescribed methods of worshiping God in earlier books in the Old Testament. God said, I want you to do these things. I want you to sing songs to me, and I want you to bring me offerings, and I want you to have assemblies and religious festivals. And so these people were deeply, deeply, deeply religious, right? If you were to put it in modern-day terminology, we would say these were church people. Right? Like, I mean, like legit church people, like capital C church people. These were people that knew the ins and outs of the church. They would have been at every weekend service without fail. They, they had perfect attendance. They, they would have even been at the 7 o'clock service on Saturday, right? That level of holiness and, and perfection and righteousness, like you guys in this room. These were really religious people, right? They, they would have known the subculture. They would have been familiar with religious vernacular. They would have known the Bible, they would have prayed. They would have listened to the fish all the time, right? They would have had a fish sticker on the back of their car, and that's, that's what they would have been like, right? They, 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 they would have had good morality, at least outwardly. They wouldn't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with women who do. They didn't do anything like that, right? So deeply religious people, and yet, do you notice in this passage, it's hard to, it's hard to miss, God's um, emotion and disdain towards this. Notice what he says. Look at how strong this wording is. I hate, I despise your festivals. They're a stench to me. They stink. He says, I won't accept them. I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I'm not going to listen to your songs anymore. And when you read that, you're like, man, what is the deal? And I think when we see this, quite honestly, for some of us, it begs a real good question. That says, why? Why, why is God, why does he seem to be so angry? Why is he so frustrated? Why, why does he have such disdain uh, for their religious practices, for their religious adherence? Well, I think you'll, you'll see that there's a clue in verse 24, because here's what God says. He says, away with all of that. He says, let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. This verse right here, by the way, quick aside, 
is actually the most famous verse in the entire book of Amos. Amos is not a famous book of the Bible. This is the most famous verse in the book of Amos. The reason, I think, probably most probable is because Martin Luther King Jr., in his I Have a Dream speech, said this, this verse. He quoted from the book of Amos. That's kind of cool. But what's he saying here? Here's what God says. He says, your religious festivals, your religious feet, I don't want any of that. I don't want any of that. What does he want? He says, here's what I want. I want you to let justice roll like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. God says, this is what I desire. I want, just, I want justice and righteousness to flow out of you. I want it to be like a river from my people. I want it to be like, an, like, like a constant stream that's consistent in your life. That's what I desire from you. Now, what does he, why does he say this? Well, here's why. If you've been studying the book of Amos, and, and um, one of the things we challenge you to do is to read the book of Amos, and I know some of you maybe had a chance to do that. And if you did that, you probably noticed that one of the reemerging themes throughout the book of Amos is that God is continually telling his people how he's continually indicting his people for their lack of justice. And so he says over and over again in the book of Amos, he says, you deny justice to the poor. You deny justice to the oppressed. You're cheating people of justice in the court systems. And God looks at his people and over and over again, he says, one of the problems I have is that you're not acting with justice and you're not acting with righteousness. In fact, let me just give you a window into some of the injustices that God is speaking against. So in Amos chapter five, just a few verses earlier, in verses 11 and 12, God says, you levy a straw tax on the poor and you impose a tax on their grain. There are those who oppress the innocent and they take bribes and they deprive the poor of justice in the courts. What's this referring to? A couple weeks ago, we mentioned that the historical situation was one in which there was an ever-increasing gap between the rich and the poor. And so what was happening was the wealthy were getting wealthier off of the exploitation of those who are impoverished situations. And so what they would do is they would put these heavy straw taxes on the poor and they would impose tax on their grain and the wealthy would get wealthier and the poor was unable to pay for these. They would just lay these heavy taxes on them. And the Bible tells us that another thing that was happening was they were depriving the poor of justice in the court system. The court system was corrupt. You could buy justice if you had enough money. And the whole governmental system was structured in such a way that, that basically it would suppress and oppress people who were in impoverished situations. So God looks at that and he says, you're denying justice to your own people. You're acting unjustly. We see here in Amos chapter eight, look what it says. The Israelites would sell grain and market wheat, skimping on the measure, boosting the price and cheating with dishonest scales. What's this referring to? Well, basically it's saying that these were unethical business practices. They would cut corners. They would skimp out, right? They would market wheat, skimp on the measure. When I read that, you know what I was reminded of? Do you guys ever buy a bag of chips and it looks really awesome and really full and then you open it up and it's like three quarters air? Like ever heard that before? When I, when I read that, that's the first thing I thought. It was like Frito's Lay's company right here, you know? And so, but they, they sell grain, they market wheat, skimping on the measure, they boost the price, they cheat with dishonest skills. God says, here's my problem with you. You guys are... You guys are cutting corners for the sake of personal gain. These are all acts of injustice. And so when you get to Amos 5, God says, I don't care about your ceremonial religious adherence. When you're acting unjustly, when you're denying justice and you're not acting according to righteousness, he says, what I want from you is I want you to be people where your righteousness and your justice is like a river. You see, what God is saying here is he's saying this to his people. He's saying, listen, you've missed my heart. You've missed my heart. I'm not, I'm not after a perfect church attendance. That's not what I'm going for. 
That's, that's not my primary concern in my heart isn't that you have 50 Bible verses memorized to the T, which that, don't, don't get me wrong, it's awesome. But he's saying, but you're, you're acting without justice and without righteousness. And so God says, you missed my heart. Now here's the thing, all right? Like I mentioned, I don't think this book was just written for God's people back then. I think this book is very relevant to God's people today, to us, to you and I who follow Jesus. And I know, by the way, that there's some of you maybe right now in this room who are still investigating all of the whole Jesus conversation. Maybe you wouldn't identify yourself as a Christ follower. And if that's the case, by the way, we, we say this all the time, we actually count it an honor that you would let us be part of your investigation. But for those of us who follow Christ, I think that this passage is really important. And the reason is because if we wanna keep ourselves from drifting from the heart of God, one of the ways in which we do that is we stay tethered to his heart. We try to know what is God's heart. And right here in verse 24, it's super clear. God says, my heart for you, for my people, is that my people are known for justice and are known for righteousness. Now, these two words right here, it is hard for me to overstate the significance of these two terms biblically. If, um, if you wanna take a super nerd challenge, this is my super nerd challenge to you this week. I would challenge you to go through your Bible and look up these two words and notice how many times in the Bible you will find these paired together. Justice and righteousness, justice and righteousness. It will blow your mind. Over and over and over and over and over again, all throughout the Old Testament, you're gonna see justice and righteousness, justice and righteousness, justice and righteousness over 50 times. You see it appear in the Old Testament in all types of books throughout the Bible. Justice and righteousness. God is known for justice and righteousness. God wants his people to be people of justice and righteousness. God wants us to want, wants justice and righteousness to flow from us. Let me just give you a couple quick examples, just four verses. Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Here's what the Bible says. Where righteousness and justice are, that is where the presence of God sits. Right? God, God dwells with the righteous and with justice. Psalm 103, 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for, the, for all the oppressed. God, God works righteousness and justice. He is a God of righteousness and justice. Psalm 33, 5. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. You see this? The Bible says where righteousness and justice are, it's where the presence of God is. God himself is a God who works in righteousness and justice. God loves righteousness and justice. And so it's no wonder, Proverbs 21, 3, God says to do what is right and to just is more acceptable to the Lord, more acceptable to God than sacrifice. What's he, what's he saying there? He's saying, listen, sacrifice is referring to ceremonial religious adherence. God says it matters more to me that my people are people who are known for their righteousness and are known for their justice. That's what I want. More than I want perfect life group attendance, more than I want ceremonial adherence to, to, to you know, checking the box of whatever the religious thing is, which there's nothing wrong with those things. But, but he says, this is what I desire, righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice, righteousness and justice, all throughout the Bible. And some of you might be thinking, okay, that sounds good. But what in the world, practically speaking, does it mean to be a person of righteousness and to be a person of justice? All right, well, think about it this way. Let's see if I can help, help explain this. So in order for us to understand righteous, righteousness and justice, you first have to understand another biblical word, and that is this word right here. I wrote it on these blocks. It's the word shalom. 
okay? Now, my guess is most of you have probably heard this word shalom. Does anyone know what the word shalom means in the English language? Yeah, just say it. Say it out loud. Peace, peace, right? So this is actually the way that uh, many Jewish people will greet each other is they'll say shalom. It means peace. It means peace. And, uh, and here's the thing. Uh, we translate shalom as peace in the English language, and that's actually a very disappointing translation. And the reason is because peace doesn't go nearly far enough to explain what shalom actually means. When we think of peace, my guess is for most of us, we think of the absence of conflict. That's how we define peace. But that's not what the Bible exactly means when it says shalom. The word shalom literally means completeness. That's what it means. It means, it means all things working harmoniously together in an interdependent, interlocking relationship in which all things work in a harmonious relationship for the completion of the whole. So, so this right here is actually in itself an illustration of shalom. So you can see here that I have a bunch of different blocks that we cut up. Well, they all have different shapes, right? They all have different images stamped on them. They have different markings on them. But when you put them together in the right order and you, you piece them together in such a way, they interlock in an interdependent way and together, these pieces work in harmony to create the whole, all right? Now, so if you can get your mind around that, this is what the Bible talks about when it talks about shalom. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that when God created the world in the very beginning, he created it good. He created it very good. It was perfect and it was without sin. And the Bible says that that state of existence in the very beginning was shalom. Everything was working together in perfect harmony. Everything was interconnected and it was all interdependent and everything was complementing everything else for the completion of God's picture and God's design. That, was what, that is what we are created for. We were created for shalom. Now, now here's the question. Is this what our world looks like today? Shalom? No. Is this what most of our families look like today? Not a chance. Right? It doesn't look like this. And why is that? Well, you guys know, ever since sin entered the world in Genesis chapter three, and the first disobedience of, of the first humans entered into the human story, shalom has been broken. Shalom has been broken, and it continues to be broken. And we all feel this. We all feel this, right? So whenever someone lies to you, or they cheat, or they steal, or they, they, they hurt you, or they offend you, you feel that shalom is broken. They break shalom. And we do this. Whenever we lie or we hurt someone or we cheat or we steal, we're selfish at the expense of another person, we break shalom. And so when you get however many billion people on this earth and we're all breaking shalom together, that's the world as we have it today. We're all contributors to the broken. We all vandalize shalom in one way or another. Now, if you can get your mind around this, shalom, okay, everyone tracking with that? If you can understand that, this is where justice and righteousness come in. Because the Bible actually says, like in Isaiah chapter 32, that the fruit of justice and righteousness is shalom, peace. In other words, the whole reason that God desires justice and righteousness is because those things are working towards shalom, right? So practically speaking, again, what does that mean? What does it mean to be people of justice and righteousness? All right, let's take it a step further. So track with me on this. All right, you got to track with me. There's two words, mishpat and tzedakah. These are the two words that we use, justice and righteousness. Like I said, you see these two terms together all throughout the Old Testament. Mishpat and tzedakah, mishpat and tzedakah, justice and righteousness. And so let me explain it. The first word here is this word mishpat, okay? Mishpat 
is the word that we translate justice. And what it literally means, this is what it literally means, it means to rectify. It means to put things right. Okay, so this is mishpat. God says, I want you to be people of mishpat and zedekah. What is mishpat? It's justice. It's to put things right. So, for example, here would be an example of mishpat. Okay, here's shalom. Somebody breaks shalom. Okay, you broke shalom. So what do I need to do now to restore shalom? I need to do some mishpat. So I'm going to pick this bad boy up. I am going to put things right. I'll put this bad boy right back where it belongs. There we go. Do a little mishpat and shalom. We're back, right? And God says, that's what I want you to do. That's justice. So here's another example. Let's say that, that someone steals something from you. Okay, they take something. They stole it. What do they do? They broke shalom. They broke the state that God wants things to be in. They've offended you. They've hurt you. So what needs to happen? Justice. Mishpat needs to happen. There needs to be some kind of payback. They need to give it back to you. There needs to be some kind of rectification. I know that's not a word. Rectification. That sounds terrible. They need to rectify the situation. Don't quote me on that. I make words up on the spot. All right? So that, that's this idea. If, if you lied to somebody... So let's just say you lied to somebody and you, you, you know, either for self-preservation reasons, self-protection, or maybe it was for, for your own benefit, or maybe it was to, you know, I don't know, whatever, but you lied. Well, the Bible would say that you've actually broken shalom. So what needs to happen? I need to rectify the situation. I need to make things right. I need to come back and I need to tell the person the truth. I need to seek out reconciliation and I need to practice mishpat. I need to reconcile this. So here's what the Bible's gonna say. The Bible's gonna say, that when we look at our world and we see that there is brokenness, we see that there is a brokenness of shalom, orphans and widows and people who are, are being treated in unjust situations. The Bible would say that those of us who follow Christ, that one of the things he wants us to be marked by is he wants us to be marked by mishpat, that we are to try to seek out the reconciliation to rectify, to put things right with shalom. All right, does it make sense? Cool. I think that for most of us, that probably makes a lot of sense when we think about justice. But here's the crazy thing. The Bible actually takes it a step further. And justice, here's a, the, the really interesting thing. The word mishpat, I think, is, is, is something that's helpful. I think it makes a lot of sense. The word tzedakah, I think, is going to show us that for most of us, we have a very different definition of justice than the Bible gives us. Because the Bible says that justice is about mishpat and it's about tzedakah. Now, let me just talk about this word for a minute. The word tzedakah, sometimes translated righteousness, sometimes it's translated right relationship. It literally means, look at this, justice or charity. Now, now here's why I think this is so fascinating. I was reading a, a Jewish scholar this past week, and he said something that I thought was so interesting. He said that the word tzedakah actually has no English equivalent. You can't find one. And he said, and the reason there's no English equivalent is because this idea is so foreign to Western culture. We don't think this way at all. He said that, that, that the word tzedakah is sometimes translated justice, sometimes translated charity. It actually means both. But in the Western world, these two things, we don't, we, they, to us, they seem opposite. So let me give you an example. All right, so let's just say for, for example's sake that I was to give you $1,000. All right, ain't gonna happen, but it's an illustration. So let's say I was to give you 1000 bucks. Now, there's probably one of two reasons that I'm doing that in our culture, right? The first one is, maybe I owe it to you. 
So maybe you lent me a thousand bucks or maybe I bought something from you and so now I'm paying you back. I'm giving you a thousand dollars. That's mishpat, right? That's to put things right. That's to pay you back for what I owe you. Or maybe the other reason I'm giving you a thousand dollars is because I'm being charitable. Maybe I'm just a good guy and I see that you have a need or I see that maybe you're behind on some bills and so I'm just gonna be a charitable old guy and I'm gonna just give you $1,000 out of the goodness of my own heart. Like I said, it ain't gonna happen, but let's just say I did that, okay? And now, now, it would probably be one of those two reasons. Well, here's the thing. The word tzedakah means both. It means both. It is, listen, it is a charity that we owe. It is, it is in other words, here's the idea of tzedakah. Tzedakah is the idea that I look at my unique gifts, my unique resources, my unique abilities, I look at my unique situation, and I don't just look at those things for the sake of my personal advancement and for my own personal gain. But instead I look at those and I ask, what is my responsibility to use these things for the shalom of those who are connected and who are around me? It's a charity that I owe. It is a love that I am liable to. It's a charity that I'm liable. I owe you this. And there's no English equivalent to this because it's such a foreign concept. So, so just to try to make it more clear, think about it like this. So right relationship, right relationship. If I was to take some of these blocks and I was to put them in a wrong relationship with each other, right? So let me ask you a question. Now that these are in a wrong relationship, do these pieces affect these pieces down here? And the answer is, yeah, absolutely they do. Because you see, shalom has been broken. They're in a wrong relationship. And if you're OCD in this room right now, you're like, put it back the way it goes, right? So, so if, I, if I take some time to put this in a right relationship, that's, that's what the Bible would say is sedekah. So what is sedekah? Here's what sedekah is. It's saying, I'm gonna take my unique shape. I'm gonna take my unique abilities and my unique resources and I'm going to not just exist for my own personal benefit, but I'm going to plunge these into an interconnected relationship with everything else and bring the, those things to bear so that everything will experience shalom. So there will be peace, right? Does that make sense? And so here's an example. If I have a neighbor, my neighbor, and he has needs, and, and his shalom is incomplete in some way or another, and I have the resources and I have the ability, and I have the proximity that I can help him, and I am not willing to do that. I'm unwilling to live in a right relationship with him. The Bible says that I'm not just being a stingy person, I'm actually being unjust. I'm actually corrupting justice according to God. I'm breaking tzedakah, I'm breaking tzedakah. Another example, if I have kids, or if I have a wife, and they have needs, they have emotional needs, they have physical needs, they have spiritual needs, and if I am positioned by God in that situation to be the one who is to help provide for those needs and I am not willing to do that or I don't fulfill that, if I don't use my unique relationship and ability to do those things, the Bible says I'm not just being a bad father or a bad uh, husband. I am actually practicing injustice. I am breaking tzedakah. The Bible would say that when we look into our community and we look in our world and we see that shalom is broken and we have the wherewithal, we have the resources, we have the education, we have the opportunity to help, and we don't. The Bible would say that that's not just being a stingy person, that in some way or another, we're actually being unjust, we're, drift, we're drifting into injustice, we're breaking tzedakah. 
So, so all of a sudden, you see here that the biblical picture of justice is actually way more robust than the way we tend to think of justice, at least in our Western mind. It's way, way more robust than that, right? See, the Bible would say that justice is not just not lying and not, chealing, not cheating and not stealing. The Bible would say, no, no, justice, what it means to be a just person is it means both mishpat and zedekah. And here's what God says. He says, for my people, I want, I want them to be known for these things. I want this to flow out of them like a river. I want it to be like a constant stream. Those who follow me, they're known for mishpat and zedekah and mishpat and zedekah. See, I think, I think this is why uh, the Bible, for example, in like books like James, like James chapter one, says this. It says that pure and faultless religion according to God our Father is to look after the orphan and the widow in their time of distress. What is that talking about? Right here. God's saying, here's, here's religion to me. Mishpat and Zedekah, be people who are known for this. So he says, I think this is why Jesus, when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Remember what he said? They asked for the number one greatest commandment. He gave him two. Love God and what's the second one? Love your neighbor as yourself. What's he talking about? This. He's talking about Mishpat and Zedekah. Justice and mercy. Justice and righteousness. Justice and righteousness. And they are to flow like a river from God's people. Now, Here's the thing, I know that when I'm saying this, for some of you this might sound super um, ethereal, it might sound a little bit kind of abstract. So let me see if I can give you an example. See if I can give you a real life example of Mishpat and Zedekah. So this past week I actually had a conversation with a friend of mine and the timing of this conversation was amazing because as I was talking to him I was like, dude, what you're explaining to me is exactly what we're talking about this weekend. So I asked him, I said, can I share this story? And he said, he said, absolutely. So, so I was talking to my friend. He's actually a leader here at Grace Church. And uh, he and another leader at Grace Church over the past couple of weeks have spent some time down in a place called, get this, and I'm not making this up, Clay Hole, Clay Hole, Kentucky. It's called Clay Hole. And if that's not bad enough, it sits right next to Troublesome Creek. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. I can hear the banjo music playing in the background. I'm like, talk about bad names. Clay Hole next to Troublesome Creek. So, there, so, so my friend, uh, my, my, he, he's in leadership here at Grace and another guy from Grace went down there to visit a church. And so there's a church that we're affiliated with. They're part of our fellowship. And they were gonna meet with the leadership and talk with them. And so this church, get this, you can't make this stuff up. This church was called, the name of it is The Happy Church. That's the name of the church, which at first I was like, that is such a weird name for a church. But then I thought, no, that makes sense. They're in Clay Hole next to Troublesome Creek. Like they need some optimism in this town. So the Happy Church is a great name. It's like stay out of despair forest and don't go down Depression Lane. You're like, seriously, this is what it's called. Anyway, so, so the Happy Church. And when they were meeting with the leaders of this church, they were explaining to them the situation in Clay Hole. And when my friend was telling me about it, I thought it was so fascinating, so heartbreaking. So let me tell you a little bit about what's going on down in the Clay Hole area. So Clay Hole, uh, Kentucky, is actually known to be one of uh, the most uh, impoverished areas in all of the United States. My friend said that when you drive through this place, you can see that things are dilapidated. He said it looks a lot like a third world country. You'd be shocked that you're still in the United States. He said when they were meeting with the leadership of this church, that the church leaders were explaining a little bit of the situation and uh, man, just heartbreaking. And they talked about how it's a very, very impoverished situation. And a, as it is with many places in the United States, um, if you have a certain amount of children or if you have more children, you'll get more government aid, you get more money. And so for a lot of these folks who are in this impoverished situation, there is no incentive for them to get out of the situation they're in. 
And so for many of them, they will continue just to have kids. So that way they can help try to alleviate uh, their poverty. And so a lot of these kids grow up and they're neglected. It's tons of abuse. It's heartbreaking stuff. On top of all of this, the education system down there, school systems are just awful. And so because the school systems are broken and because no one wants to go there and help, the government and the state will, will, will kind of pump money into these things. And, and, and the way it works is if your child scores a certain score, below a certain score on these academic testings, if they do that, the government will give you even more money. And so the, the system is set up in such a way that, that not only, not only are, are the kids not going to flourish, but you have incentive to stifle their education. And so, and so what's happening is adults are purposefully stifling the education of these kids. They're having tons of kids and trying to get more support from the government so they can fuel this. And what's, what happens is by the time that these, these kids are 15, 16, 17 years old, they're functionally illiterate. And by that point, man, your fate is sealed. The hope of going to college or getting connected to a career or any of those type of things, those are all dashed, right? And so what happens is they stay in clay hole and then the cycle repeats. And the cycle repeats. And it's this vicious cycle of injustice in which there's a system that's set up that continues to push them down. And so what happened, I thought this was so cool. There's this group of people who went to start this church called the Happy Church in Clay Hole. And they heard about the situation, they heard about the poverty, and rather than simply acting out of compassion and rather than simply acting out of generosity, they decided to take a mission of justice. And they said, we're gonna get to the root. And we're gonna go in and we're gonna seek to change it. They started this church called the Happy Church. The people that started it were people who came from different, way different situations. They had education, they had opportunity, they had resources. And yet they decided to lay those things aside to immerse themselves in this need. And, and through that, since they've done this, they've started after-school programs to help some of these kids, to give them a chance, to give them a fighting chance. They started to do financial classes to help people get on their feet. They started sharing the love of Jesus with these people, tell them about the gospel. Lives are being changed. They started a food pantry in which they would collect food and help people who were in need that was interesting i was reading on their article they will give thanksgiving meals to people who don't have and a lot of these kids have never had a thanksgiving meal and it's interesting when i was hearing about this situation i couldn't help but be struck with the strange dichotomy that here my wife and i i've mentioned to you we have three kids and we're expecting our fourth i just started thinking about it i thought man is it fair at all that my child that is currently right now going to be due here in April, that by the grace of God or whatever, however it works out, by the grace of God, my child that's going to be born into my family, into my situation, into this country, into Medina, Ohio, has about a 300% better chance at hearing the gospel and at education and at ultimately even finding more fulfillment in this life than someone who's born in clay hole. And is that, man, is that just? Is that just? This is what the Bible's saying. It's saying, man, God's people gotta be people of mishpat and tzedakah. We need to seek these things out. They're to flow through us. And they're to, to, they're to, to impact us in such a way that we, that we seek out 
Um, not only justice, but also we seek out right relationship to use the unique gifts and abilities and resources that God has given us to plunge ourselves into uh, the needs and the shalom of others. Anyone feeling guilty yet? Curiosity. And, and look, here, here's the thing, all right? I, and you gotta hear me on this. And we talked about this a little bit last week. The goal of all of this is, is not to feel guilty. That's never the goal of these things. Guilty, guilt, as many of you guys know, especially I think if we grew up religious, guilt is something we feel a lot, unfortunately. It's a pretty lousy motivator, though. It doesn't really last very long. And so, so how is it possible that we're gonna be able to do these things, mishpat and zedekah? Here's the answer. The only way that we're really ever gonna be able to do these things in a way that honors God, in a way that's, that, 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 will, that will sustain itself, is when we are so moved by the fact that God himself has acted this way towards us, that we were the recipients of his mishpat and his zedekah. And I want you to think about this for a minute. Jesus Christ, the Bible says that Jesus Christ took all of his gifts, his, his luxuries, his his blessedness. God took, Jesus Christ took all of his divine privileges. And the Bible says that he saw our brokenness, our broken shalom, and he practiced mishpat. He saw justice and he said, I wanna put things right. And the Bible says that Jesus plunged himself with all of his resources and with all of his, with all of his gifts and with all of his unique position of who he is and he plunged that into the human story in such a way that we could experience true shalom. And it's only when we realize that Christ has done that. It's only when we realize the beauty of the gospel, we marvel at that, that we will turn and be people who practice mishpat and zedekah. What does God require of you? Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with him. And ask the band to come up. And uh, as the band settles in, I just want to kind of close our time with three quick questions, just three questions for you to consider and as we worship and we sing, maybe you just want to think through these and talk to God about them. But here's, here's three questions to consider. Here's the first one. Question number one. And, and this is really for those of us who follow Jesus, but here's the question. How am I contributing to injustice? I think this is a really important first question. And the reason is because I think one of the dangerous places, one of the dangerous drifts that can happen, uh, the beginning of that, is when we, we start to believe that injustice is something that's happening out there. That, yeah, yeah, there's people doing injustice and they need to be brought to justice. See, see, and that's what the Israelites did. They failed to see it in their own hearts in, in the mirror. And so the question that we have to ask to work with God is, man, how am I contributing to injustice? How am I breaking mishpat? Am I, am I cutting corners? Am I lying? Am I cheating? Am I, am I stealing shalom from another person? Am I breaking that? And what do I need to do to restore that? We have to ask the question, am I breaking zedekah? Am I hoarding resources and opportunities and education that I have for the sake of personal advancement rather than plunging those things into uh, the lives of others for the shalom of our families and the shalom of our community and the shalom of our world? That's a good question. Here's a second one. How has God uniquely shaped me? Gifts, abilities, opportunities, resources, and what are ways that I can leverage these things to bring shalom to my family, to my neighborhood, to my workplace, to my community, to my world? So it's a great question is, man, how has God made me? What, what, what kind of unique, what's my unique shape? What, what unique resources, what unique gifts and abilities do I have that I can bring to bear on 
places of brokenness within my family, within my community, within my world, here in Medina, whatever. How can I do that? How can I take what I have and, and utilize that and leverage that and plunge that in for the sake of others? And here's the final question. Am I connected to the body of Christ so that we can corporately make an impact together? All right, now, this is, a, this is a really important question, and uh, if you're a person that maybe isn't familiar with this term, the body of Christ is actually a term the Bible uses to describe the church. We are the body of Christ. And I actually really love that metaphor if you think about it, because the Bible says that the church is intended to be the hands and the feet of Jesus, that we together are to do the work of Christ within our community, which begs a good question, right? And here, here's the question. Why, why, why do we even have church? Maybe here's a more personalized way to say it. Why does this church exist? Why does the Medina East Campus of Grace Church exist? Is it just so we can put on weekend services? Is it so that we can learn more about books of the Bible like Amos? Is that why we exist? Do we exist so that we can appease some sense of religious guilt that we feel? Are we, do we gather because we want to sing inspirational and motivational songs that will inspire us and propel us to have a good week? Is that, what, is that why we do this? And of course the answer is no, not exclusively. We do some of those things. But that's not why we, why do we exist? Because we're the body of Christ. The reason this church is here is to become the hands and the feet and to reflect the heart of Christ to the community. Why did God put this church here? Here's why. He loves Medina. He loves it. He wants to bring shalom here. God loves Brunswick. God loves Copley. God loves Strongsville. God loves Wadsworth. God even loves Seville, believe it or not. Right? I don't know why I keep picking on Seville in this series. I have no idea. I actually have nothing against Seville. I've only been there like twice. I, I, I didn't, and when I was there, I didn't even know I was there. I was like, where am I? Oh, Seville, okay, yeah. And, but, but man, it's just, God loves it. And he puts a church there because he wants righteousness and justice to flow. He wants us to be a fountain of righteousness and justice that brings shalom into the world that we live in. This, by the way, is why in your programs we have those cards. Those are just opportunities to get connected, more, that we corporately are trying to work together for the shalom of our community and our world. And that's why those exist. I'd encourage you to check those out. But as we have an opportunity to sing and pray, maybe just think through these questions, process through them, and uh, close out. Let's pray together. Well, God, I, I just, I know everything we're talking about tonight, it's not possible. It's not possible aside from the power of the gospel. It's not possible aside from your example. And Jesus, when we think about the fact that you purposefully um, treated us with tzedakah, that you treated us with mishpat, that you saw our brokenness and you saw our sin and you plunged yourself in to our story, and God, you laid down all of your rights and you leveraged all of your resources, ultimately your very life, to bring us to a place of peace with God. I think it's only when we recognize that that we will ever be motivated to do the same thing. God, the truth is, when we live this way, we experience the joy that we were created for. We weren't created to be stingy people. We weren't created to exist for ourselves. We were created for shalom. And I think it's only when we give our lives to the pursuit of that through justice and righteousness in our own lives and in the lives of others that we'll experience what it is that we're truly made for. And so God, I pray that, that as a result of today's conversation that you would change our hearts, 
Make us more like you. God, I pray that our hearts would reflect you. Help us to be people of justice and righteousness. We're not perfect. We're gonna mess it up. We're not gonna get it right all the time. But God, I pray that it would be like an ever-flowing stream that we would constantly come back to uh, wanting to wanting to pursue these things in our community, in our world, in our own lives. So Father, thank you for your word. I pray that we'd be blessed for having heard it and I pray that it would affect change in our lives that we might go do it. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.